0: This is the EWN Podcast Network. Do you know how often identity theft occurs? Every two seconds, affecting even children. The great news is that you and your loved ones don't have to become the next victim. In the Cyber Mindful with Sandra podcast, we'll explore together simple practices That increase the cyber safety of you, your family, and your business. I'm your host Sandra Esto, and I believe the key to protecting yourself from hackers, scammers, and cyber monsters is rooted in being fully present, both online and offline. This podcast is a conversation among friends. I'm delighted that you are choosing to take charge of your cyber safety because you deserve to have peace of mind online and protect what matters most to you. So let's do this together. Welcome to another episode of Cyber Mindful with Sandra. Today, I'm delighted to, to introduce you an incredible guest. I, I was just, you know, reading about... Steve, I have never met Steve before until today, but reading the list of accomplishments left me, wow. So let me just tell you a little bit of who Steve is. Steve Oren is Intel's federal CTO. CTO is a chief technology officer, and he's a senior principal engineer. He leads public sector solutions, architecture, strategy, and technology engagements, and he has held technology leadership positions at Intel, where he has led cybersecurity programs, products, and strategy. Steve is recognized, it's a recognized expert. He's named one of the world's top 25 CTOs. I mean, think about that. 25 CTOs in the world. It's that just amazing. And he's received several awards and and He, I love this. He is a CTO to watch in 2023. So definitely, Steve, I'm watching you in 2023. So I mean, I will continue. I can continue here. I'm going to have a whole bio of Steve in our episodes notes so you can read all the amazing accomplishments. But I just want to hear from Steve now. So I'm just going to stop talking and welcome Steve to the show.
1: Thank you very much Sandra and I'm happy to be here today.
0: Absolutely. So, now Steve, I always start for, you know, tell me your story. Like how did you get to be the CTO of, of Intel? How, you know, all the positions that you have held in your in your career? How, how did you get there? It's a really
1: good question. Um and it it goes back to the to the mid 90s. Um when I was actually a research biologist by trade. And that was what I was planning to do was to go into the field of uh, uh, biochemistry and research biology. And I had an opportunity early on uh, to do something a little different while I waited for my grants to come through and helped Mm -hmm. a friend get a a company off the ground. And he had some money. He had an idea that he wanted to do something in this internet thing that everyone was talking about Mm -hmm. in 95. And I said, you know, there's an area that we should look at. Email security is going to be a big deal. And so together, we started the company and I architected the product and fell in love with the industry and have never looked back. I have been uh, you know, employed in the cybersecurity and technology arena since the 90s, and it's been a fun and exciting ride moving from one one area of focus to the next. So once I did my first startup and just Mm -hmm. fell in love with that whole process, I did multiple startups in the cybersecurity arena. I had a okay. great opportunity to learn from some amazing mentors early in my career. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the joke sucked their brains dry of all their great knowledge. Um, <laughs> and then in the mid 2000s, got acquired by Intel and have been able to have a lot of fun playing the CTO role with Intel's budget and be able to do some <laughs> amazingly cool things at the scale that Intel brings to the table. So yeah. I, I look at my career and as I started out as a serial entrepreneur and I've been at Intel now for 18 years. And I think I'm, I still think of myself as a serial entrepreneur, um, just with a bigger budget.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a big budget <laughs> now with, with, I mean, I, I, how did you get into biology to, to begin with? Because I, I want the story to go back, you know, much sooner than that, because I how that twist. I mean, that, that is just so incredible. Like, you know, you have an inclination for technology for sure to be able to pull that off. But so yeah, tell It me- was interesting. I,
1: when I was a kid, I had two loves. Um, I had two, you know, two things that I thought that really got me up in the morning and was, I thought was exciting. So biology and sciences uh-huh. and, uh, you know, and hacking and technology. Okay. And, you know, in the eighties, there wasn't really a field in security or in technology I mean, you could become a COBOL programmer and work at a bank, but that really wasn't an exciting career at the time. So, yeah. you know, be a researcher in in biology—that was exciting, and that was the the path I had chosen uh, in college was to really do that biology. But I always kept the technology on the side. I'd been a you know a, a hacker of things and you know understanding how the early technologies work, how software worked. I was coding you know in, in elementary school, and then um, when the when the time came, you know, I was well-steeped into things like cryptography. It was all sort of on my own uh, mm-hmm. just because I thought that the topics were fascinating. There was no coursework in this that you could take in college. But in my biology role, I also had to do you know sort of labs and things. And so I took a technology bent to my research. Um, one of the cool mm-hmm. things I, I helped develop was a software program to be able to do analysis of biological processes. And so mm-hmm. I was always marrying the two worlds. And then when I got the opportunity to actually, you know, do something in the in the hacking side, in the cybersecurity side, I jumped on the opportunity. But I never left my biology background, and it served me well, as we look at things like compliance regulations for healthcare or understanding, you know, sort of the, uh, the the security and privacy needs for medical devices. I do speak that language, even though I don't get to speak it often.
0: I was going to ask you, you know, what what part of biology you still are connected to. So thank you for, for answering that question because. Definitely, you 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 are able to fulfill both of your passions, and of course, I think technology is taking us to places where maybe who knows more more biology <laughs> things will be required now to have cybersecurity. So I don't know. <laughs> right? Absolutely,
1: I mean the, the the two worlds are merging. I mean, whether yes. it be personal fitness devices, medical yeah, monitoring. Health. Exactly, and there's a big there's a big concern about how do we protect your personal data.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, definitely. I, I want to talk a little bit more. You know, about you, and then we go into cybersecurity. So now, t- share with us. You know what what has been one of the most difficult decisions that you have encountered. You know, whether it's in your career. You know, you know it could be at as a serial entrepreneur, or it could be as, you know, someone in the corporate environment or in the government related environment. So for you, what, what has been that most difficult decisions you have made and why? So that is a really good question. And
1: I look over the course of my career and there've been m- multiple uh, inflection points throughout mm-hmm. my career where tough decisions had to be made, whether it was when i my early startups where you know it, it wasn't taking off, and you know because of things like nine eleven, we had to close down the company. You know, yeah. Figuring out how to exit the company and still give you know the employees a little bit and give the investors so those kind of decisions are always hard, especially in yeah. the startup world where it's very high risk. Um, I know that in the case of my second company, where we had to when we shut it down, we did give our, our technology to the couple of customers that were using it so they could continue to use it, and we were able to give our employees a, mm-hmm. a small you know, for severance, but that was one of the hardest decisions ever was to shut down, you know, my baby in that respect. I
0: can imagine. Uh,
1: But the, you know, the thing is I maintain those relations. So the people that worked with me at that company, I still talk to today, and some of them, I've, you know, we, we've, we continue to work together. They're working at partner organizations. It's a very small community. Um, yeah. And I always, you know, one of the things that I've always tried to live by is surround yourself with people smarter than yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, and listen. And when you do that and you build that relationship, those are relationships you have forever. Um, I think that was one of the harder challenges. But I think there was another interesting one just on the technology side. When one of my companies, we were looking at, uh, we had, there was a problem set that everyone said it was a huge problem. The analysts loved it. The VCs loved it. We were going to solve a cybersecurity problem for mainframe systems. Mm-hmm. And at the time, mainframes were still very popular. They were being used for okay. all the big business applications, and they needed better security. And so we built a product that solved that problem. And we're very successful at solving a problem. But when we actually went to deployment, one of the things we learned is that while the customers recognized that was an issue, they had a bigger problem, which is they couldn't get the mainframe on the internet in the first place to even have some of those security issues. So there was a precursor that we really hadn't judged well because we were listening, I think, more to the analysts and the future thinkers Mm -hmm. and not as much to the day-to-day customers. Now, thankfully, we learned that lesson early Mm -hmm. and were able to pivot to pivot our technology to address that other need of how do you web-enable a mainframe system because we'd already had to web-enable it to apply the security, so we were able to refactor. But I think that was a real interesting sort of aha moment of how you go about gathering the right requirements and having Mm -hmm. to learn to be able to, you know, very quickly, nimble, uh, be able to to pivot to address the actual market need. And it was one of those really good learnings. I'm thankful I learned it early enough in my career where Mm -hmm. I've been able to apply it going forward. But I have to tell you, you know, when you're when you've been told for a lot, for a year and a half that you know security for mainframes is the number one thing that everyone's going to want, and you get into a customer and you start talking to the actual admins, and they say, well, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I can't connect it to the to the web anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that's a real that's a real eye opening experience. <laughs> um, and having to sit down with the developer and say, okay, here's the situation. How do we then solve it? And thankfully, I had some really smart engineers, and we together. Figured out that we'd already really solved the problem most of the way, just mm-hmm. figuring out how to connect this web security stuff to the mainframe in the first place. So it was yeah. a, it was good that we were able to learn that and and become out better afterwards. But uh, you know that aha moment was definitely challenging at the time.
0: I can't imagine. You know, when you were talking, I could imagine like you were building a car, but there were no roads for <laughs> the car exactly. to ride. So. Right? Exactly, everyone wanted a car, but there was nowhere to run it. <laughs> yes, so you're like, oh, okay, we have to to build a road, so then now we can use the car. Now, so going back to that that moment, Steve, I was just reading today. Exactly, I was doing another show, and we were talking about how many how many businesses, uh, startups, companies, and you, you know, do you, do. You, Declare yourself uh, an entrepreneur, and you—you you were definitely an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. But ninety percent of the of the startups fail within the the first, you know. I was just reading ninety percent within the first five years. I mean, ten percent the first year, but then it goes to seventy the second years, and it gets worse. So. No. You, you know, From your perspective, what, what would that be, you know, if you, if you were to tell me three things that are the most underestimated things as, a, as an entrepreneur, you know, what, what would those be and what would be a solution now after all the experience you have that you will recommend to someone that is listening to us that perhaps owns a business or wants to have a business?
1: So a really good question, and I, I, as you were asking the question, I was starting to think of what would be the the key in the key things that would lead to that kind of high uh, mortality rate, if you will, for startups. And I, I think you know, like, it's not going to explain all of them because sometimes it's mm-hmm. just you know market conditions are fickle. But yeah. I think there are a couple of things that, if you look across those ninety percent, and you look at what were some of the indicative things that are the the bell curve. I think number one is going transition to scale is a killer. Mm-hmm. So yep. you come out of the gate with a really good product that works great in the lab in that one customer environment where you've got it demoed, mm-hmm. and then when you start to look at okay now how do I grow my business? How do I scale it? You know, inside the company that I've sold it to, or across multiple different verticals, you find that that scale problem is really what kills. And it's not just out startups; it kills innovation projects all the time. Yeah, where you've got this really cool idea in the lab, but it doesn't. You don't actually think about how do I get it you know, from one system to thousands to hundreds of thousands of systems. So scaling is a big one. Um, the other is really understanding your, your customer. And I think Mm -hmm. this is a hard thing I learned early in my career and every day I'm presented with this challenge of understanding who the actual customer is And in our interconnected world. It's not always obvious who the ultimate customer is. You may have multiple channel partners between you and the actual user of your technology. Or you may have multiple integrators that are also part of that, that supply chain. And the key mm. is recognizing that every one of them is a customer in their own right, but they're not the final say. Mm. And I think oftentimes you'll find products that are perfect for a particular customer. But when you look at who has the budget or who has the problem, yeah. it's not the one you've been building to. So you build, let's say, you build a product for the CISO, but the CISO doesn't control the budget. for It's the line of business. So What's their problem? Or you build a product that works really well for a particular market, but you can't scale it to another market because it's so tied to the weird specifics of that one vertical. So that's gotcha. that understanding your market, understanding your customer, and what you know is is a key area where a lot of startups and really innovation products too um, mm-hmm. fail to meet, fail to, to launch mm-hmm. or get across the chasm or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's it's not not designing to the car- requirements that you're going to need. It's sort of only listening to what you think you know today. Um, and then the last piece of the puzzle, I think, is also understanding that the complexity of the architecture itself. A lot of technologies are brittle. I mean, it's just the way the way of, you know the way it is. You're trying to do move fast and trying to build quality in earlier is one of those things that oftentimes startups say, well, I, if I can get the product functional out the door and get my first you know, viable product, that's the most important thing. But then it's not supportable. And so, cause you have too many bugs or you have too much, you know, it's too hard to, to fix uh, or to add new features because you didn't architect it to be, ne- to be modular. Mm. And so it's, it's similar to the first one around the scale, but it's more about how do you successfully deploy? Um, and I give this feedback to my engineers all the time. What worked on your laptop doesn't mean it's going to work at the customer.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I love everything that you just said. And I think Somehow, both examples, you know, what you ta- share about your entrepreneurship um, challenge mm-hmm. relate somehow with also the, you know, your story about the requirements and all these three things. Somehow, you know, it doesn't matter if it's really a, a small business, a startup or a large corporation. If you don't transition and you don't scale, or if you don't understand your customer, your market, or uh, you don't architect, and especially today with all the intric- in, in, intricacies of uh, cybersecurity or security into your product, you might have a harder time to position that product.
1: Absolutely. And you know, and when you asked you asked about you know what would be some advice mm-hmm. um, I think one is something that um, I learned at my second company, and it was something. Now I've made it a, a practical part of all of our. Mm-hmm. Is you have your customer and the requirements of product manager who represents the customer involved from the get go. Yeah, and so you know not only did they help you with the initial design, but you continually feedback from the customer throughout the process. It's not well. Here's what you wanted, and I'll come back in six months and tell you what I built. You make them. You, you make them part of your agile team, and so you're always learning what the needs are and being able to adjust and be able to anticipate change. And I think that, you know, it's not about scope creep. It's not about adding new scope. It's about revalidating your assumptions throughout the process. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes we make assumptions based on the information we had at a moment in time, and the world doesn't stop moving just because we're in development. And so having requirements not only early but often is a key part of that. Uh, How do you make sure that you're still building what people need or you're at least building to what they're going to need? Yeah. Um, the scaling, the scaling side of the camp is really, um, it, it's similar. It's understanding the environment. Where's, where's your success. Oftentimes, you know, when you start up, you're just going to win that first customer. That's again, what the VCs are holding you accountable. Well, show me the first customer. Mm-hmm. But then the next question they're going to ask you is, okay, great. Now, how do you turn that one customer into 20 or into 200? Yeah. And if you don't build a product for that model, you're going to be starting from square one again. And that's where a lot of companies run out of runway, run out of funding as they try to then scale that one time that they were able to build it. But if you start building your product with an eye to what it takes to scale, whether it be APIs, uh, a flexible framework, even something as simple as having a, a modular approach to the different components so that if it's somebody you're going into an environment that you need to use the cloud or you need to use a certain set of services, yeah. you can plug those in without reinventing the wheel. Yeah. And again, I think nowadays we've, we've got a lot of teams that are really great at sort of mm-hmm. looking at the services-based microservices and all these kind of uh, mechanisms. But even there, we're seeing that where you get locked into one approach. And if you're locked into an Amazon and the customer's using Microsoft or Google, yeah. mm-hmm. then you're, you know, you're trying to convince a company to move off of their cloud provider is a lot harder than trying to get them, you know, than buying your product. And so they're going to stick with their cloud provider. Or if they've got data in one place, moving it out of that place is really hard. And so starting with an eye towards multiple avenues will help Mm -hmm. you scale into the real world. And it's, again, understanding that there is a world much bigger than just that first exquisite customer that you get.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's super, super, super important. I love love the simplicity of what you're explaining and how, you know, sometimes as an entrepreneur, you know, I, I find myself you know, with all the time with this um, dilemma because you create products, you, you create services and you have a customer in mind and maybe doesn't scale as fast as you want it to scale. And um, I, I, you know, one thing that you said, that I, I took note is, you know, do, you know, what is that need? And it's always that thing about what people need versus what people want. And how do you balance that? Because I want this, this, and this, but maybe I don't need all of that. Or how do you? How do you? You? Um, what is the strategy that you have used to engage into something that maybe the customer or 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 the client doesn't even know they need, but but you as as the you know the the strict the strategic person behind the the solution know that down the road that's going to happen yeah
1: so there are a couple of approaches and when i think about it and it really is a good question you're asking there sort of how do you balance what they want what they need and what they're going to need that they don't even yeah. know yet mm-hmm. um and, it, and when you look at it from from the requirements and the product development um there's sort of you think about it the 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 need sometimes there's also another factor what's what's broken today needs to be fixed when you think about a product yeah. you have bugs that you want to fix for your current customers, needs of your customers to, to grow to get that next customer. Wants Everyone wants something, but are they, the real question, the first question between want and need is what are they willing to pay for? Yeah. That's going to be, that's one of the first steps out of the gate and good salespeople and good product managers can really determine, is this a feature that's going to gain you new market or get you a new contract or get you deeper into the, or is it just a nice to have that's, you know, that customer is going to want everything. And so you really have to get down to what is it they're willing to pay for. And that's why the term minimum viable product MVP is often used because if we spend our time trying to build perfect, we'll never get a product out the door. But if you build a product that doesn't fulfill the need, they're not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. But do they need to have all the GUIs aligned up perfectly or do they need to have every API well-documented? Probably not. Mm-hmm. but you have to give them a roadmap to their wants by set, but for sure satisfy their needs. And that's it's a balance. This is where good product managers lay out that, uh, that want versus need. So what's minimally necessary to, you know, to win the business and then what allows you to grow the business or to capture new markets or to be able to make the customers happy so they keep buying more. And that's mm-hmm. the want section. As a CTO, one of the things that I would often do is that what do you what are they going to need? And that's really what they're going to need that they don't know yet, or how do we go after a new market that our current customers? So one example of my third company, we had a product. Our first product was targeted at the security auditors, mm-hmm. and so the people who do the audits on companies' applications to test them for security and test them for uh, whether or not they're you know they're, they've got cybersecurity holes and vulnerabilities and, and be able to highlight those, which mm-hmm. is a good market and it's a strong market. Two things that I saw down the road that our that customer wasn't asking about was number one compliance, mm-hmm. which was you know a thing that was going to come. So how do you map what we've done to HIPAA, to PCI, to yeah. fit, to these compliance regimes? But the other was understanding that the auditor doesn't fix anything; they highlight all the problems, but they yeah. actually can't, don't solve the problem for the organization. Developers in QA fix bugs, and so if I could build a version of my product that could be used by the quality assurance team or by the developers in their unit test before it ever got to the auditor, we could fix many of those bugs earlier. Mm -hmm. That was a wholly new market. But the thing is that you look at my customers were the auditors. They weren't asking for developer features or fix recommendations. So as a CTO, it was my job to be able to carve out a tiger team that could go look at this future use case. And one of the things you had to do is you had to separate them from the business, from the line of business that was building your product. So the VP of engineering, Ran the engineering team for version two, version three, version four. And I had a separate Tiger team that was building functionality that could be dropped in at a future date that would do things for developers or, you know, like plug into the QA systems or show them a report that would show a PCI mapping to the audit log. And those kind of features you have to do independent of the product requirements for the current version or they'll never happen because it's not addressing your current customer need, it's addressing a future market or future customer need. And the best Mm -hmm. way to do this is you find big companies do this, they'll say, our business engineering is going to do 90% this, but 10% something else. It's Mm -hmm. that same kind of model. In my case, I took three engineers. and I said, your job is to go figure out how to do this future thing. And the engineering team then wasn't distracted by stuff that wasn't meeting the current customer. And all I asked is give me a a place to land. Like, I'm going to add this new module. You know, it's coming. Give me a place to land in our version four. And we'll have a piece ready for you. And that way you can do parallel tasks to actually then expand your market or to to go after and do something novel, anticipating what the customer needs. And the other cool thing is that module, we had our own, you know, we could build prototypes with our our advisory customers. I could bring them something and say, hey, what do you think of this cool little idea and validate it with them before it became part of the product. And that's another thing, again, about keeping your customers in your loop and letting yeah. them influence and tell you what they what would be cool for them to do in another part of their organization.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a way also to keep, you know, creativity and, all, you know, the latest into your development. That's so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit, Steve, if that's okay. And now, I, sure. I, you know, I want to talk about, you know, your perspective in the world of cybersecurity. Of course, you, you are in Intel, uh, large organization. Oh, I would like you to to talk about the consumer side and that what are the biggest challenges that, from your perspective, we will be we are facing and we will be facing, um, you know, with with all the different things that are everyday challenging us. Whether it is um, I call it cyber monsters instead of actors or attackers. Uh, You know, cyber monsters are out there always looking for ways to get in. But you also have this, you know, race of technology, you know, AI and all these different things that are, you know, developing more and more capabilities. And how how do you keep up? How a consumer can keep up? How organizations can keep up? How government can keep up? Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, it's a very interesting question. And, and really, when you look at it from the consumer, um, and there there's a different threat model of mm-hmm. the cyber monster that are targeting the everyday consumer versus what are targeting large corporations or federal governments. Um, oftentimes, it may be some of the same actors, but with different motives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think right now that the thing that affects more people in the consumer space is honestly ransomware, is probably one mm-hmm. of the hottest things that yeah. everyone is dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. And it impacts, you know. More so often nowadays than data breaches, because while data breaches happen every day and it, you can't go a couple of weeks without finding out yet another company that your data was in got breached, yeah. the actual impact to the consumer often is minimal. Now mm-hmm. it's you know usually it means getting another you know paying for cyber monitoring, changing some passwords. Yeah. Worst case even in some cases where you have to go you may have lost some access to data because like, somebody you know the, uh, your data was compromised. But the thing that actually affects the consumers when your photos and your files are locked up on your laptop, mm-hmm. that is the thing that hits home the most, I find, is ransomware. Mm-hmm. And so from, a, from the consumer perspective, the thing that has the most negative impact and it, the most, you know, like it hits you right at the heart, it's mm-hmm. your files, your data on your system, and it's your ability to access the internet and your email because your system's locked up. And yeah. that is, I think, one of the things that scares most people, and it's a valid concern of how do I protect myself from ransomware? And it's it's a, it's not a one size fits all. It's not well. There's a silver bullet if you just do this, that solves your ransomware problems. It's yep. both a to, you know, prevent the attack, but also protect your data, and yeah. have the and have both of those happening in parallel. When you look at organizations, you know whether it be large corporate, you know banking, healthcare, manufacturing, retail, or even federal governments, ransomware's still in there. But there are other types of attacks that that they're worried about. You know, ex- data exfiltration, data mm-hmm. theft, the data breach, um, and then compromise of systems for uh, denial of service and degradation of mm-hmm. capability. And so when you look at that, at the broader scope from it, of a corporate, it's not just, you know, are my systems being locked up, but is my corporate IP or my customer's IP being stolen? Yeah. Or am, I, am my systems being uh, targeted so that I can't, you know, do my business? Am my brand going to be affected or I'm not able to do the ATM network is down or things like that? and if your business is affected that way. Mm-hmm. And so there's a broader set of threat vectors. Yeah. Um, underneath that, we see a lot of the same techniques. So how do they get onto the systems? They come in. Sadly, a lot of the attacks start with a phishing scam, whether it be a spear yeah. or more a broad net-based. It starts with somebody being tricked into clicking the link, downloading the malware, navigating to a bad site. That is still where a large majority of the attacks, whether it be the nation state to the federal government, or, you know, your, my mother on her laptop, both of those, it starts oftentimes with phishing. Um, there's still, there are obviously other kinds of attacks that will happen on governments and on large corporations, whether it be, you know, rogue employees, USB sticks still are a problem. But I'd say mm-hmm. phishing scams in all of their different forms are probably still one of the number one starting points of how they get in the front door. Yeah,
0: I I love that you mentioned that because you know one of the things that we talk about a lot in this show and it's that's why it's called cyber mindful. It's you know incorporate more of of an approach that can help you to be intentional, to be aware, and to be very mindful before taking an action. Whether you are a corporation, you're an individual, or a government, the more present that we are, the less probabilities. Is. We have to click the wrong link, or to open the, you know, an attachment, or to answer a phone call. So, you know, thank you for emphasizing that topic because this is something we talk a lot in this show. So, for you that is listening right now, not just me, <laughs> talking about being intentional, aware and mindful. Steve,
1: too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it and it comes down, you know, you're, you make the right point. It's being mindful about what you're doing when. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also some best practices, whether that be backing up your data to various different services so it's not all in one place. Um, yeah. One of the things I've always, you know, for my family and my friends, I always tell them, if you're reading email, don't be going to your banking accounts at the same time. Just simple things that yep, if you keep absolutely. those browser sessions separate, it, it, it reduces the amount of, of potential for attack. Because if you do accidentally click the link, you don't have a live session for it to try to grab. Little Absolutely. things like that are helpful. It's not going to prevent every attack, but it reduces the surface area.
0: Yeah, I call it. You know, it, in, I, you know, I always talk about this topic of don't become the easy prey. Like there are so many, so many types of cyber attacks that happen because we forgot. You know, we're using the same password, we're doing the same thing, so we're trying to multitask, and you know, it makes us that easy prey. So we. You know, but we here in this show are not like that. We actually are incorporating practices that allow us to make better decisions online. So that's you awesome. that is listening. And I'm super proud of you because you are in your way to, you know, to, to take cyber. I mean, I believe that we're in charge of our cybersecurity and our cyber safety, that there's no one coming to save you or do it for you that it's each of us that have the ownership of that. And once we understand that we have so much power and that we can decide to click or not to click, to answer, not to answer a phone call, that changes the mindset that we have about cyber.
1: Absolutely. And we choose where we put our data and how we use it. And that's I think one of the key things is that people think, oh, no, it's always somebody, you know, some cloud provider or some yeah. service provider has all the, the keys to the kingdom. And mm-hmm. we forget that we choose. And I think when, when more people choose to do the right thing or choose to use better security, um, we all then raise the bar for everybody.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Now, I, I, we're wrapping up the interview and I always ask these three questions, Steve. Well, first of all, is there anything that I did not ask you that you are dying to answer? <laughs> and no, I think
1: you... we, covered, we covered a lot of a lot of key bases. Um, I will say on a positive note, as, as even as we talk about phishing and ransomware, the good news is is that you're not alone. You know, while we all have to take ownership, we're not alone. Yeah, there are companies, both the the classic cybersecurity companies, that are all trying to sell you know the various services and technologies. But even the OEMs, the cloud providers, the, the service providers, um, and your platform providers all have a vested interest in helping you to secure your systems and to better protect your data. And the one piece of guidance I can tell you is oftentimes you already have a lot of those protections. You just got to turn them on. You just got to use them. When it says they have two-factor authentication as an, op- as an option, use it. You can. It are, you don't have to pay anything extra for it. Those, they're free services and free apps that will help you do that today. If you've got a, a laptop that has advanced security features, turn them on. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I find oftentimes you find that they people have the security, they just don't fully use it. And so while we, uh, we definitely own our security, there's a whole ecosystem that's trying to help us too that we should take advantage of.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, what, from your perspective, is, you know, what is your favorite piece of technology? and, and you know, why is that? And, and just tell us about that.
1: Well, that's a really tough question because there's so many <laughs> technologies I deal I with every day I and mean, working <laughs> at Intel, I see the future. Um, and I know right now everyone's excited about chat GPT and things yeah. like those launch models and they are exciting. And I think we are witnessing one of those 10 X inflection points in yeah. how technology is going to change the, uh, Change the way we do things, and I look at it not as a scary thing. It's not going to replace jobs. It's not yeah. going to, you know, kick out teachers or developers. But it is an opportunity for us to figure out how to leverage this to really affect change, whether mm-hmm. it be in, you know, day to day lives, in education, in, in technology development, or even in areas of healthcare and predictive maintenance. So there's so much opportunity there. Uh, um, but as far as you know, sort of the, the technical things that I you know I find fascinating is some of the miniaturization just. The things we're doing to make things smaller and smaller, huh. so that we can get more capacity into the same environment, whether it be at the data center or the edge, and the intelligence we're bringing to the edge is really game changer. And people look at the you know the electric vehicles as an example, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are seeing capabilities now where you can send a drone into the forest and have it map the forest and look for blight at the same time. And so now you've got you know the, the forestry. Department of Forestry able to do two things. Number one, get better sense uh, a census of what trees and things are growing in the and the trails and the conditions, but also at the, in the same platform be detecting disease in the yeah. in the trees, a blight, and, and detecting brush that could be potential wildfires. All of that on the drone itself, and so you now mm-hmm. have these drones that are go out and do this because the technology is miniaturized to where we have intelligence in the in the small uh devices and the, and the unmanned vehicles and that's just one example of how miniaturization of technology and putting to computing next to the sensing is changing the way that you know a, a, what would be a fairly mundane mission of walking the track the trails inside a force to be able to look at the national forest health are now being transformed to do more with that platform and so those that's the exciting areas where i see um things are really uh, moving towards the building to do more in those edge environments.
0: I love it. My mind is just going so many places. I mean, with all the things that can be safe and can be improved and can be um, incorporated into into a a more proactive and and predictive way of, of, of living or of being. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Definitely we'll be reading about mini mini because I haven't I haven't been exploring that. So you are the first person that say that's their favorite technology. So just want you to know that. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, Steve, I always ask this last question. You have do you have your phone nearby by any chance? I do. You do okay. Now I want you to tell me. Now that you have your phone in your hands, tell me three things you're grateful for that phone, and why.
1: Ooh, that's a good question. So I can tell you. Number one is easy. I have my, the, my pictures of my kids at re, ready access. So mm. I have my all of my Google Photos, and whenever I want to show off my kids, it's easy, and oh. uh, I don't have to go look for photos. I have all the photos of my kids, and I actually have them on my, uh, on my, you know, on my my uh, my lock screen because that they, they are. It, it's I have very young kids, and it's just great to be able to see the la- the latest what they're doing. So that, number one is easy. That's um, photos of my kids. I
0: love um,
1: it. The the second app that I can't live without is um, honestly. Being able, you know, I'm a I'm a cook, I'm a chef, and so being able to search for cool new recipes. I love
0: cooking uh, too, so we have that in common.
1: (laughs) So once in a while, I'll look in the fridge and say, "Okay, I have got these six ingredients," and I'll search for recipes that include those six ingredients and want to try something new. And so it's Google search, but it's with that eye towards finding Mm -hmm. interesting, you know, international recipes that we can try um, and and expose myself and my kids to some of these really cool things that we're able to cook. Um, from a variety of cuisines. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's the second thing. Um, and then again, I'm a cybersecurity person. And so uh, there are some security apps that I have on my phone that really make my life easier. I have a really good password manager that allows me to have complex passwords for all of yep. my sites mm-hmm. because you want to have complex passwords. The problem is, is that we're human and trying to remember complex passwords for 50 or more sites is not possible for the human brain. Yeah, and so having a good password manager that's easily integrated in both web and apps has been a lifesaver for someone who's crazy enough to have long passwords for every site, which is what you need to do today.
0: Yeah,
1: and so I think like my pa- I, if I think about the apps I use most, I use that one every day to keep you know just be able to log into things securely and to be able to then augment that with my two factor authentication apps, and I've got a couple. Um, I don't want to you know I'll call it any one, but there's some really good free ones that are just easy to use. And we should all be using them.
0: Absolutely. You know, we, we had a whole episode about passwords, and I I like to uh, put my passwords to work for me. So I use a password manager too. And what I teach is use an inspirational phrase or something, a, a declaration, an affirmation as your password and make a long phrase that when you type it makes you happy because, you know, somehow. When we find ways to to incorporate technology with the things that makes you happy. Like you, you're talking about cooking, you're you're like, oh my gosh, you're light up <laughs> in the in, in and I know you cannot see us if you're listening to us in a podcast, but you can go to YouTube and check the video and see Steve talking about his cooking when he was like. Just change your face and your kids too. Look, those two moments, priceless moments. When you Thank do you. that, um, you know it, it changes. It changes you. It changes. Now it's not boring. It's not something that. Um, how do I say this? Your password is what separates your bank account from a cyber monster. And yeah. when you think about that, and you put your password to work for you, you gain huge 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 benefits and with now it's not just me steve is also telling you that so love it
1: absolutely yes definitely and one of the recommendations i've given to to folks is think about fictional places Mm -hmm. that you maybe have read about a book or a line that you like a quote and then change it a little bit to make it your own so it's not something easily and you can then get a really good long password maybe throw a number in for a letter misspell the the name of the place and you got something that you're passionate about, but it's not going to show up on any dictionary attack.
0: Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is, this has been a very, very delightful episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Steve. You have been incredible wealth of knowledge. Uh, is there anything is, is if people want to connect with you, how do they reach you? And. Just, just
1: tell us. Thank you very much, Sandra. A pleasure to be here today. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, I'm available on LinkedIn um, at linkedin.com slash uh, SORIN. S-O-R-I-N. So look forward to connecting with you. Uh, and again, Sandra, thank you so much for ho- hosting me today. It was a fun conversation.
0: Absolutely. And I will see and be with you in the next episode of Cyber Mindful with Sandra. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening I'm so grateful for you today so if you enjoy this episode please tag me in social media at way to protect again it's way number two protect and let me know if this episode has helped you. I would love to hear from you and if you like to know more about me check out my resources at my website SandraEstock.com. and remember be intentional, be aware and be mindful be I am. Here I am now.